This show is brought to you in part by the University of Advancing Technology. UAT is a unique technology-infused private college that was founded by a geek for other geeks. Our mission is to educate students in the fields of advancing technology to become innovators of the future. UAT's campus culture is devoted to continually nurturing a thriving geek community where everyone's personal lives and professional aspirations revolve around technology. The beginning of the 21st century is an exciting time to be in the technology community. Current subjects of ongoing research and scholarship at UAT include robotics and embedded systems, artificial life programming, information and network security, game development, and other areas of advanced technology. Check them out on the web at www.uat.edu. Shoutcast streaming provided by Versus the World Productions, www.vtwproductions.com. Hi, folks. This is the Emperor. I'm here to remind you to listen to the Emperor's Court every Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern right here at vtwproductions.com. That's the Emperor's Court, your three-hour break from Internet porn. At the moment. I'm Robert J. Sawyer. The ABC TV series Flash Forward was based on my novel of the same name. I served as creative consultant on all the episodes, including the pilot. I wrote the 19th episode Course Correction. Prior to that, I wrote the series Bible for a little-known but well-regarded science fiction series called Charlie Jade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm Morgan Gendel. When I was a young writer, well, not so young, but when I was starting out as a writer, I had the good fortune to uh, do several freelance episodes for Star Trek Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. And one of them turned out to be this episode that I think is kind of well-known called The Inner Light, uh, which I'm very proud of. And uh, I'm not totally a science fiction guy, but I seem to keep going back in that world. And uh, so I brought the Dresden Files to uh, television. I, I, I do, too, for a lot of reasons. Um, I was not as actively involved in Dresden Files as I would have liked to have been, but I did uh, get it on TV, so that was a good thing. And uh, I did MTV's Animated Spider-Man. I did several Tech War episodes and got to hear lots of stories from the master of Tech War, Captain Kirk himself, and that's me. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like we have a mix of both science fiction stories and fantasy type stories with like Dresden Files as vampires and ghosts, so am I. Um, are fantasy novels more forgiving in t- turning into TV than, say, a science fiction where we know the science already we have? No. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, when I was working on Flash Forward, the word kept coming down from the network executives at ABC that Every time you put any science in, you lose 10,000 viewers. So if you have a lot of science in an episode, you can lose a big hunk of your audience. Uh, In fact, there's not a lot of real desire for real science on uh, any kind of science fiction or fantasy TV production. Well, I would uh, would argue that point with you. I think the thing is is that, that people forget is that science fiction has two components to the phrase. One is science, one is fiction. Um, one of the things that I was very adamant about with the uh, Stargate universe is the science that we actually know, you know, you can't mess with because we actually know that science and so that, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be the nerd in the back going, in episode five, you did this thing where that guy did that thing. And that just totally doesn't make sense. And I'd like to give you a six-point reason why. Um, and off they would go to the races. So uh, I, 
once you've once you've got the basis of the of the science correct, you don't want to you don't want to you know have a big long exposition of a kafunk, but you want to get it right. It's when you start doing the speculative stuff that's when you want to have that's where you can start playing, and that's where you can say, okay, we're gonna try this and we're gonna fudge this, and maybe it'll make sense or not. But the whole point of that is to get the when you do something like that is to get them through these sixty minutes before they go. Now wait a minute, that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Well, here's a funny thing, though. Uh, on the Dresden Files, uh, they still picked it apart, they being the network, which was Science Fiction Channel, still picked it apart as if it was science. These were immutable laws. So they would say to me, like, well, I, I had him, uh, when we were developing the pilot, I had him jump out of a building and kind of create a bubble around himself that would give him, like, a soft landing, like a big soap bubble, just because I thought it would look cool. And they said, well, could he really make a bubble around himself? I said, he's a wizard. <laughs> okay, he can do anything we want him to do. They say, well, there have to be certain rules. I said, yeah, and, and I'm interested in what you, you gentlemen think about this. I think sometimes too many rules kills it. Yes. Like, you don't want to hear the word mythochlorians ever again. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that is a perfect example of someone, uh, something that should have been left alone. The force should have just been able to be the force. It was cool when it was, it was just the force. It was cool before you found out that it was just some sort of, you know, little tiny bug inside of you. And because just think what the midichlorian black market is like. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, all these people going around going, you will give me $50. You will give me $50 or whatever they're, whatever that they do. He, he absolutely ruined it. He absolutely ruined it by inserting the midichlorians. And he knew it because you never heard midichlorians right. again, except for like a very brief notice in, in episode three and stuff like that. But over explaining over-explaining. And this is one of the things that I had to tell the writers, because the writers would come in and they like, we need to do this, and then we use calcium chlorate, and we do all this sort of stuff. And I would have to go, and I would have to, my job was to go in and check a lot of their science, and I would be like, no, this is why this doesn't work the way that you think it does. And in fact, if you do this, what you will do is that you will just enrage a whole bunch of people. And so less explanation is better. As long as it's, you get the, you get the stuff that, it, that you put in enough there so that it seems logical, right? Uh, it, and then you let the people who are going to nerd out about it do the, the nerding out about it in their own brain. It's like, oh, I can see how that worked. Yeah. Right. It's, uh, you both raise very interesting points. Of course, there's no way you can package uh, Stargate Universe as anything other than a science fiction show. It's got star and universe in the title. <laughs> there's no way that you can have a TV show on the sci-fi channel. Oh, forget that argument. They got all <laughs> kinds of crap on the sci-fi nice channel that done, isn't sci-fi. Thank you. But on ABC, we were told at the outset that this was not to be presented as a science fiction show. Press relations came and, argued, and gave us all a briefing and said, it's not science fiction, don't mention science fiction. And I said, excuse me, science fiction writer, science fiction novel, book one science fiction awards. You paid a lot of money for it, and now you don't want that part of it? No, no, that's fine, but people will only watch science fiction if they don't know that it's science fiction. Just like they'll only eat healthy food if they don't know that it's healthy for them. So we had a different kind of uh, game we had to play because we knew, all of us, myself, the staff writers, the producers, that it was a science fiction show. And uh, ABC was adamant that the only way to get a broadcast network-sized audience was to not have it be pegged as a genre show. It had to be seen as a police procedural, a medical drama, all those things that it pretended to be at other times. And that was really a difficult thing for me because I'd come at it having written a very hard science fiction novel <laughs> and wanted to maintain as much of that as possible. But it really is still alive and well, this prejudice 
against science fiction. And even though we weren't acknowledged as science fiction, it was clear internally at ABC that they had two science fiction properties. They had V and they had Flash Forward, and there was no way they were going to renew both of those. They only needed one of them on ABC. I, I think where a lot of these things intersect is what I call faux science, mm -hmm. F-A-U-X, and I think it applies to, I mean, there's so many fantasy shows in development now that are very similar to Dresden Files, but on the flip side of it, with this faux science idea on uh, The Next Generation, or Deep Space Nine, um, you had people there on staff who were science geniuses, but I would go to them, I'd say, well, I want the Enterprise to go through like a giant car wash in space, so I guess <laughs> the idea for it would be, and I, I don't remember, this is from Starship Mine, it was like the, I, I basically said they had to degauss the ship. Mm, so once right. I said that, we came up with a name for it, and they would say, oh yeah, that's okay. I mean, there's... But it's, you know, it's, now I gotta say here, because that was where you did the, um, uh, the Hadron sleep, Sweep, right? Yes. That's what it was, thank you. Right, right, which are <laughs> neutrons and protons, the single most heavy parts of your whole existence. You get rid of them and there's nothing left but electrons. And I hated that name, I hated it. And I actually sat down with Andre Bormanas, who was one of your producers and science advisors, and said, how could you let that go? He said, well, something slipped through the cracks. So I it wasn't a good name. I don't remember if I no, came up with Hadron that name or not. It was the Baryon Sweep. It was the Baryon Sweep. I think it was the Baryon Sweep. Baryon Sweep and Hadron Sweep. I like the giant car wash in the sky, personally. It's like, well, here's what I said. This ship is going through 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 hundreds of millions of light years, and it's got to get, like, crusty stuff under the hull. And you never saw the episode where there's guys chipping away. So that was my thing. But what I'm saying is in this faux science, yes, somebody had to come up with Something that I think the key is, and I'm going to talk about this when I talk about the inner light later, it's just got to sound legitimate. It's got right. to sound pleasant. Well, and, that's, and, and, and there's a couple things there. I mean, one, often what we do is that, you know, uh, particularly with creative consultancy, is they bring in, it's like, we want this, right? Now tell us how we can do it that we won't enrage people. Um, and so you would, you would, like, for example, there was an episode in... Uh, the uh, in Stargate Universe where they're, you know, uh, one of them is infected from this plant that it entirely crusted up his arm, and this whole, you know, the entire uh, planet was like, looks like they were coming in after them, and like, how do we make this work? You know, how can we do this? And one of the things that I, that I had to do was give them some sort of reasonable scientific explanation. It's like, all the plants have come alive and they're coming after them. You know, is this day of the Triffids or what? And what I did was, I said, well, there are these... Uh, Organisms, you know, like the aspens or the fungus up there in Oregon, that they're all underground. They just every once in a while they come up and they, you know, shoot. So you have to give them something that that seems reasonable. That someone who's look, looking at it goes, okay, that, yeah, okay, you know. And and like I said, you get them through the entire sixty minutes after the after the show is done, after the final credit rolls, and they go on to the next story. If they go, no, that just didn't make any sense at all. We won because we've gotten you through that episode. <laughs> That's all we have to do. We have to entertain you for 60 minutes. If we just get you, it's like, you know, if we get you not to notice the Potemkin village is only one, you know, you know, one lane deep while we're pulling you through it, going, wow, these are really great houses. Could we live? No, we keep moving. Which, which is the art of making movies all the time. It really exactly. is only one lane deep. So let me, uh, let me ask something. Is, it, is consistency a big part of it? Like, not looking at an individual episode, but looking at a series is part of the goal that you just have to... Uh, not change your rules in midstream. 
I think that if you change your rules, you have to have a really good explanation why you change your rules. And obviously, the really good explanation could be, uh, we fired this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and the new guy had different rules. Right, and the new guy had different rules, so you got to bring that in. But, uh, but otherwise, yeah. No, if you are... And, you know, like uh, with the Stargate Universe, we, were, we had the communication stones. And the communication stones were part of the, the landscape because they were already part of the landscape. Um, and so we had, to, we had to work with those. And you, you just you were stuck with them. And it, was, it turned out to be positive because they said, this is something that we know is we have to use. How are we going to use this, actually, to our best dramatic advantage, right? That you can't just use them to, you know, just let everybody have go home every five hours, you, you figured out a way to, to make it work that they were still isolated and yet they could still, still get the information that they needed. You do have to, I think you really do have to stick to the rules and if you break the rules, then it either has to be like, you know, cliffhanger season event where you are making, look, you put, you put a lamp, lampshade on it, you know, where you're going, look, we're breaking the rules and we're going to do this for a very specific reason. Otherwise, it just looks sloppy. Yeah, when, I'm, refer, I'm referring to things like, uh, I, I'm sorry. No, uh, go ahead. Uh, just, you know, if, if you think about the way the ships could travel on on uh, Star Trek and others. They 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 can't suddenly make it do. Well, they probably did occasionally did wormholes and stuff. But basically, I mean, episode to episode, you have to be traveling in the same manner. Your big rules have to. Once you get people to buy them, yeah, you kind of got to stay. No, and 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 nerds who we all are. Um, are very, very much of a sticklers for rules. I mean, are we nerds or geeks? Can, you, can somebody just tell me? Okay, so here's the difference. <laughs> Since you asked, all right? Oh <laughs> a geek wonders what sex is like in zero gravity. A nerd wonders what sex is like. <laughs> you're, you're a very sexy geek. Why, thank you. <laughs> On the rule thing, one of the reasons I think that Flash Forward ultimately failed, much to my and my accountant's chagrin, <laughs> is that we did have a major rule change partway through when we had a showrunner change. Showrunner is executive producer, also serves as head writer and, and runs the writing room and the writing staff. And our rule was that even, and it's sort of the premise even, even with foreknowledge of the future, you can't evade your fate. That was our rule. So it was free will is trumped by determinism. That's what Flash Forward was about. And then when we got a new showrunner in, we suddenly had characters saying it's not fate versus free will, which was our fundamental conflict. It's fate and free will. We actually had a character say that on air. And it was going to be sometimes this and sometimes that. And there was no longer an overarching rule right. for what could happen on Flash Forward. And at that point, I really think, even though a lot of the audience couldn't articulate why they'd given up watching, if you press them on it and discuss it with them, have a dialogue, it's, well, I, I, it didn't make any sense anymore. I didn't see where it was going. I didn't understand the rules. Right. So even at your overarching level, the rules have to make sense. One of the huge reasons why Star Trek V failed so dramatically against all the other Star Treks is because it lost the rule that Star Trek was science fiction and not fantasy. fantasy yeah. And that's a, a lot of people can't articulate what the difference is, but they know it when they see it. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, Star Trek had moved into a mystical fantasy realm, and setting aside whether or not that story could have possibly been salvaged or, or done better, it wasn't it didn't fit the rules of Star Trek. There are things that are and are not a Star Trek or a flash forward or a Stargate universe story. But the, the, the thing about rules is that they are not necessarily limits. They are simply 
this is what you do. This is how we've shaped this particular universe. It's like the, the example, to go back to our, our wrinkle in time readings when we were all 12, is the, uh, the thing of you, you, a sonnet has very certain rules. You have to do it in a very certain way. And within those rules, you can say whatever you want. It's, it's very much of a, of a, you know, of a, you know, a chaos uh, attractor. Here are your rules. Anything within those rules, you can, uh, you can do whatever you want, but you have to adhere to the rules. You break the rules. Um, like I said, the, you know, the thing about nerds or geeks or however you want to call them is that they are, they're very sensitive to rules. They know where the boundaries are. They know that way things are supposed to work. We're very mechanically sort of, you know, set in our ways. And so if you break those, they notice the discrepancy and, and it disturbs them and it makes them unhappy. And did you work on Enterprise at all? No. Good, then let me slag it. <laughs> Enterprise did something with its whole second season, which was breaking a rule that Star Trek had had up to that point, especially in classic Star Trek, but even in the subsequent series as well. Star Trek was a thorn in the side of the status quo. Star Trek did not say what your leaders in Washington wanted to say. It said the opposite. So it had anti-Vietnam War comments in the 1960s. Starting with the second season of Enterprise, which was that season-long George Bush's wet dream about going after the people who had gotten uh, Manhattan on 9-11. Only it was the Zindi and it was Florida, but it was exactly everything that George Bush would have ordered up in a propaganda hour of science fiction television to sell his vision of setting aside your liberties, setting aside any pacifism or idealism, and just going and hunting them down and kicking their butt. That was a violation of a fundamental rule of what Star Trek was. And Enterprise, even though by its fourth season, and new showrunner, Manny Cotto, new staff writers, Garfield and Judith Reese Stevens, among them, Andre Bormanis promoted the full writer, all of that. Despite all that, it could not recover from a, a blatant violation of the rule of what Star Trek was. You Canadian. Hey. I, I, I want to say, by the way, uh, Robert will be selling the IMDB chip implant in the brain, where you can recall. <laughs> <laughs> it's very powerful. Um, I, I'd like to kind of ask a question to the group uh, to... to uh, to go back to this area of the overlap, and I think people feel very comfortable, and pe by people I mean executives, feel very comfortable with, with the fantasy idea be precisely because right. you don't ever have to just... So I would say, what is X-Men? Is X-Men science fiction or is it fantasy? Interesting. I like yeah, <laughs> fantasy almost every. Well, no, someone, two someone else. No, somebody nailed it. It's comic book. Comic book. It's, com it's comic book. Own world. Which is which is which is really is its own its own little sort of amalgam of of, of it. I mean, it, I classify it as science fiction because it's it does presume to have a rational right. basis. It presumes of, it, but if you look at how that ends up with the powers it ends up, it's no different than a wizard. Oh, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. I mean, the, the, the whole point of it is, is that it has the window dressing of, of, of science fiction because right. of their genetic mutations and stuff like that. So that nominally puts it into the science fiction cap. But the fact is, is then they can do whatever they want um, and that makes it fantasy. But in fact, what it is, is this was initially marketed to tw <laughs> 12 and 13-year-old boys you know, uh, and because it was cool, and that makes it comic books. Yeah, interesting. You know? Which is not, again, a criticism. That's not like, you know, how can you do but that? But there's, there's separate genres. We had, on Flash Forward, the pilot was written by David Goyer, who is known for comic book stuff, Batman uh, Begins, uh, and, but also Brandon Braga, who is known, of course, for his work in the Star Trek universe. Sure. And we lost Brandon after the pilot. He was to have been the showrunner in a contractual dispute with Fox, and he went on and had to uh, fulfill duties on 24. 
And Mark Guggenheim, who was a producer associated with comic book properties, was brought in to show run episodes two through 13, a 12-episode run. And during that time, the show took on a very different sensibility than it had had in the pilot. It had lost having a head person uh, at, the, at the tiller who had a science fiction sensibility. Mark took it in a different direction. For whatever reason, uh, that wasn't the direction the audience wanted. But more importantly, it also wasn't the direction they had been promised by the pilot. Right. And that, yeah. So you've been talking about ones that have broken the rules and ruined it. How about ones that maybe that you're not involved with but that you love because they followed the rules or you enjoy whatever world they set up? They all disappoint at one point or another. I loved, loved, loved the new Battlestar Galactica until the end of the new Battlestar Galactica where I felt a whole bunch of implicit promises made to the viewer about how this was going to play out were thrown out the window. The They're new angels. Oh, don't... <laughs> Spoiler alert, Mr. I was, Scalzi. I was about to say, no, we're, we're two years on. We're, we're, they've oh, got okay. the DVDs. Spoiler alerts yeah. have an expiration they date, do. They do actually have well, an expiration date. Well, in that case, I, I thought that Rosebud was the end of Lost. Dude, no, exactly. So there, okay? You'll no. never enjoy that film. King Kong. <laughs> Get ready to weep. No, but... Um, well, there is also something to be said. The, 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 rules, the rules cut both ways. You can, you can definitely have ones that follow the rules and they, they make sense and stuff like that, but you can also have ones where they get a little stultifying. The first, the first uh, two and a half seasons of actually Next Generation were the ones that were very explicitly following the rules that were laid down by Gene Roddenberry and they had a very certain particular feel. It wasn't until yesterday's Enterprise um, that, in fact the next generation came, in, came into its own because then it started saying, this is what we are as opposed to just rehashing you know, what, what had come before. And it made a huge difference for that particular series. It made a huge difference because then you were no longer, you know, I don't want to say slavishly following, but just you know, directly adhering to everything that had come before. You were, you were changing the format. You were letting the characters come forward. You were giving them their own, uh, their own sets. So by breaking some of the cherished rules of... Uh, the original Star Trek, so to speak, by you know changing the game a little bit, it became it became its own it became its own thing, and then you could have then you could finally have the argument, you know, Picard versus Kirk. You know, then that argument finally made sense. Well, and in terms of those rules, the one that Roddenberry articulated that really wasn't wasn't present at all in the original Star Trek. But this is depending on how you count it, 85 or 100 years after the original Star Trek. And rule that Roddenberry articulated was, in our future, people have evolved beyond interpersonal conflict. Yeah, that's and we were stuck with that for the first two seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation. And only after Roddenberry was you know, eased out, and then finally, regrettably, of course, of great, course. great regret passed away, uh, did we start getting the core of drama, especially when they decided to make Star Trek not the uh, sort of the isolated episodic shows that it had been in the original show, but to have these character story arcs that went throughout a season, they started to have some meat and depth to them. And that was a rule that had been imposed on the series that was not good for that series. Yeah, that At the risk of stepping on something I'm going to say when I talk about the inner light at 4.30, I, I came to the conclusion that uh, emotions trump rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example for me is, uh, it's a movie, can we talk about movies? But Source Code is a recent movie that I think is fabulous. And the reason it's so good is because they give you certain rules, but it's always being led by the emotions. So at some point when they start twisting it around, you're, you're with it because you're hooked in emotionally. I think this is true of everything I've 
written, tried to do in, in television in this genre too, and I, I, I don't know if you gentlemen agree, but I think if, you, if, the, if the emotions are being carried properly, you can kind of futz with the rules you can, a little bit. You, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, is that, you know, uh, TV is not, TV is not D&D, you know what I mean? Uh, not that I don't love D&D, but, you know, uh, the fact of the matter is you are watching actors have emotions that are created by the writers, and you have to, you have to pull it through. If all you have is rules, um, then it's going to be a very boring TV show, and it will last for, for, for three episodes. You have to give them a hook. But there have been a lot of episodes like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, you can get away with it. This is, and this is, I think, something that, that goes to, to you, uh, something you kind of uh, put in there a little earlier, Rob, which is that any time that you have a series that has 13 or 20 or 26 episodes uh, in a season and you have three, four, five, seven seasons, you're going to have clunkers because it's... It's the nature of, oh, crap, we got to get this out in a week. You know, no matter what you do, there's always going to be something that, you know, there's going to be the episode that, you know, breaks things or there's going to be an episode that, you know, just doesn't work or some, uh, some character does something that that character would never do simply because they're like, we know, we know, we don't have time. You know, um, when, I was do, when I was doing the creative consultant stuff, I, would be, I, I, I said sometimes it's like you really need to fix this. This thing really needs to be fixed because it's going to so cause you problems later. And they're like, we know, we love it, we already ha have the effects done. So, you know, <laughs> and that's part of, that's, you know, that's part of the, rea the practical reality of, of a television show that sometimes you run out of time or sometimes there are other considerations and this stuff just goes... You just have to let it go. It usually helps. TV is a fast-moving train, and my experience is that it helps that it's so fast-moving because a lot of the naysayers uh, get hit by the train. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, you're just, you're just racing through this stuff, and I think the people on the inside of doing a show, I, I mean, it's interesting for me talking about Star Trek because I was never an insider. I was an outsider. I wrote two episodes of Next Generation, two episodes of Deep Space Nine, always an outsider. And so you kind of see it from a different point of view, but... You just you got to finish that episode and start the next one. Yeah, and I think that's always a boon. You just kind of like say, let's make it work. We know the characters. We know what the fans like. I, I see movies getting into more trouble with this kind of stuff because they they have so much time to agonize over, it and right. so many so much so much more money is ex at stake for one yeah. one particular it's thing. E it's easy to go. Oh, what's another twenty million? We've already spent right. two hundred. Yeah, right. Hey, well, look at the, the Spider-Man play on Broadway. I mean, that's an unbelievable. That is, I mean. I'm dying to see these back to back, and and I think it's going to be a huge money maker because there's been people people want to see what was made out of this. But to to change the lore of Spider-Man, isn't that isn't there a law against that? I'm serious. Yeah. Speaking of, well, I mean, but of course there's irony there, of course, because comic books change their their rules all the time, which is why I was I was at a, a friend's. Uh, uh, who, who works with the, with the Marvel franchise, and he had, like, the Marvel Encyclopedia. And it's longer than the Encyclopedia Britannica, right? <laughs> I mean, literally, it just goes on, because you know, you've got, like, what, like, 14,000 universes, and everything is different. And, and I was just like, and, and he was like, oh, yeah, no, I got it all. I'm like, you are a special breed of obsessive-compulsive, sir, and I salute you. Because... <laughs> I, I mean, this is one of the things that, that for me with, with comic books, I just can't keep up. I just don't, it's, it really is, it is really kind of soap opera-y with, with spandex and tights and stuff like that. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, I just, I just marked myself for death, didn't I? <laughs> I love you all, please. On that note, I think I should open it up to the audience and let them ask you some questions. Go for it. On the spandex and tights and rules and television, uh, 
I hope that you guys worked on Heroes and oversaw its downfall, but did any of you watch that or? I was a big fan of the show. Yeah. Uh, for how many seasons was it on? It's like four, four or five. Oh, it just seems like seven. Um, <laughs> I was a big fan of the show for a season and a half. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I think happens a lot, and I think that this was happened with uh, Battlestar. I think to some extent it happened with X-Files, um, and it just happens, which is that the, the first goal of, of a science fiction, uh, or any TV series, frankly, is to get it on the air, you know? And there will be a lot of things where they will fix it in post. Where are we going with this? We don't know. We'll fix it in post, right? You know, we'll figure it out as we go along. And the problem is, is that generally after a while, they they realize that they don't know where they're going and they can't fix it in post. Uh, and so now they're trying to do the, all the things that they just sort of had to do to get people's interest, to get them excited. Lost is another example of this. They've got to somehow tie it all in together and there will be no, absolutely no satisfying answer. You know, X-Files did this, Lost did this, Battlestar Galactica did this, Heroes did this. Um, it's very rare for that, you know, them to actually, you know, everybody will of course tell you, well, we always meant it as a trilogy, or we always had a five-year arc, but they're lying. They're totally after They're lying, lying totally to lying. you. Well, and you want totally. to believe them, I understand, and, and that's what they, you know, but they just, yeah. There's, there's a couple of phenomena at work there as, as somebody who's been on staff and, and run different TV shows. The producers get bored before the viewers. The producers are sitting there every day, living, breathing, well, some of you are too, but the, the, producers, the producers really at some point, you know, think about it, after a couple of years, two, three years of doing a show, they, they want to entertain themselves. They want to think of new things, and I think this is a place where they go wrong because I think the fans want to see things change, but they want to see them stay the same too. They want to see them change within the structure that's been set up, whereas the producers will be the ones to say, yeah, let's throw that out and change something. I, I'm not smart enough to come up with the example right here and now. Yeah. The Great Gazoo on the Flintstones. What was that? Yeah. Cousin Oliver. Yeah. Cousin Oliver on the Brady Bunch. Well, it's yeah. exactly the it's phrase, jumping, it's the, jumping shark. the shark. Yeah. And it's a producer who well, always a, makes that choice. Right. Uh, Don Maxwell Smart in 99 will get married, jump the shark. And yeah. there's, there's the other phenomenon is that I know this happens every time on these shows that are um, like 24 that are episodic. Mm -hmm. uh, they come in with a Bible and they have a year-long Bible and they're so excited because this is so different to do a TV series where you know what's gonna happen for the full year and they start doing episodes and uh, at episode six they say, okay, we've run through the entire Bible. Right. So they have a Bible to last 22 episodes, it lasts six episodes and they say, Oh shit! What do we do now? Right. So that it's just—I don't know why it happens, but it happens on every show that does this. The right. Bible, you think, because yeah. you think it's so great that it's going to last, and when you start doing it, you really start compressing. Right. Because you guys know outlines. Mm -hmm. I, I try to resist doing outlines completely. I say now when I'm hired to do like a pilot or something, I say I want you. To, I'm going to tell you something up front. This outline you have me rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Nothing in it is going to look like that when I finally finished. Right, because, script. yeah. On Flash Forward, we went through four different villains. Dyson Frost was our original villain, played by Michael Massey, and we had to get rid of him. We brought in Ricky Jay. We built this beautiful set where Ricky was holding uh, Jack uh, Davenport and Dominic Monaghan's characters prisoner in a basement, and Ricky was going to descend the staircase and come down. He's a, he's a magician by profession, wonderful, uh, great character, uh, big, heavy guy. And he looked at the stairs after they'd been built, and said, 
I can't climb that. I have emphysema. He, <laughs> we had to write him out of the show. He couldn't do what needed to be done, even though he was fabulous. We went through two more villains after that. And every time you bring in a new villain, everything shifts. And you have to say, oh, no, the conspiracy is larger than you always thought it was. Mm -hmm. It was larger than we thought it was, too. <laughs> So, I mean, if, if, if you know that, if you sort of know that going in, I mean, uh, this was telling tales a little bit out of school, but uh, the, uh, in between the first and second season uh, of Stargate, uh, I, they came to me and they was like, okay, we've made it to the second season, we should figure out what Destiny does. You know, and uh, because we knew that we had this big spaceship and that it was going, right? Off it goes. What is it going to? Where are we going with it? now we get to figure that out. Um, and that's why in the second season you had that thing about the structure which they were seeing, which, you know, and that was kind of interesting in of itself because the whole thing of how to show this big thing that, you know, no one else has seen in the background radiation of the universe and how to, to, to be blunt, you know, when it was first presented, it was, it was complete and utter bullshit. And now we, and, and the goal was to raise it to just, yeah, it's just bullshit, right? <laughs> But enough, again, to get you through the 60 minutes and that, so it made sense. But yeah, but it was very much the same sort of thing where you're, you're, you're thinking, it's like, oh, yes, there's a master plan. And it's like, no, we, we, we make it up as we go along. Now, to the defense of the, the, uh, the folks at Stargate Universe, by, between the first and second season, we figured out and we actually knew where it was going, and I could tell you if you bribed me. But, uh, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is you know, you, it took that first season to get everything established, to get the characters established, to make you care about what was going on on that, that we could then move forward from there and uh, say, okay, now where are we going with all of this? What does this all, all mean? It, there, was a, there was an end game, fortunately, but I suspect that we would have gone, done what you just said, which is like we would burn through all that right. end game and by in the middle of episode, uh, season three, and then there would have had to have been something more. But in contrast, I, I was told... Uh, by a good friend of Damon Lindelof, this is already like two generations removed, and maybe this has been written up, I don't know, but that when he pitched Lost, he actually made the sale by pitching them what the ending was. Right. He didn't know any of the middle stuff, but he said, the plane crashes and here's what the ending is. So if that's true, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, especially with that ending. Exactly. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but... Yeah. But you could see how in a pitch it might be pretty compelling to, right, right, right. to say... There's a movie called Passengers, which is that exact same yeah, story. And I think, I think somebody like, had that movie buried because it was going to come out like two weeks before the finale of Lost. Sure. We have another question down here. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on Doctor Who about rules Well, they've got a built-in thing where they get to change the rules every time they change an actor, and I think that's kind of awesome. I mean, the, 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 yeah. yeah, Doctor Who, Doctor Who. Um, and they don't, ha they don't change all the rules, but every doctor is different. It ha the, every doctor has different sort of talents, skills, responses, all that sort of stuff. They, they have a new presentation every time they meet, you know, the Daleks or whatever. Um, and that's, that's very sneaky of them. And I suspect that that was not intentional. The reason that they did it that way was simply because they know if this goes long, we'll eventually ditch the actor and get a new one in, you know. But... The, the practical aspects often dictate what you can do with the, with the Bible or the canon of, of the series. So. Yeah. How, how do you feel about cliffhanger episodes? I always feel like I'm reading a tabloid headline and I know I'm going to be gone. Because when it comes back the next season, it's not 
Sure, as, as I don't like them. And in fact, my series flash forward ended with a cliffhanger, which really pissed me off. I was, oh, the question was, how do you feel about cliffhanger episodes? The last episode of Flash Forward, number, uh, the 22nd, is a cliffhanger. And we didn't come back for a second season, which is a, a perfect example of why it sucks. Even if it doesn't suck, what happens is over the hiatus, there's staff changes. The people who wrote the cliffhanger won't necessarily be the people who wrote the conclusion, right? right. The conclusion, uh, the producers may change, the network may decide we're moving you to a different time slot, so what was acceptable when you had lots of sex and violence last season, you have to either tone that down or ramp it up. Things change. Uh, Season-ending cliffhangers, the, the most famous example, was the one that kind of made it in vogue, was the Who Shot JR 30 right. years ago on, at Dallas. Uh, was innovative when they did that. Next Generation started doing it every season, and you go, man, Come on. They only really had one, Best of Both Worlds, I thought was a really good yeah. cliffhanger. Yeah. Uh, but it's unsatisfactory. Now, John and I both write books that are in series as novelists. Mm-hmm. Um, I always take it as a covenant that I have to give you a complete reading experience yes. in the book. And the reason you'll come back for volume two is not because you got Book Us Interrupt Us out of volume one. Right. It's because you had such a good time. You want to have that orgasm again, yeah. right? And, and speaking to his point, the other practical reason to, to do it that way, and, and you and I are in complete alignment with this, is that you may not be able to find book one or book four or book all that sort of stuff. So every book that I give you has to be a complete experience in, in of itself. And if you read the other books, then you'll get... You get uh, you know the extra special added bonus of knowing all the context, but that story has to fly in and of itself. I think cliffhangers can be useful uh, in in some ways. I mean, they're kind of they're kind of fun. I mean, the the whole point of them is you know you go back to the 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 serial the movie serials you know tune in next week where they really literally did it exactly that way every single time, and it's and it's a fun thing to do. But if you use it, it's like any tool. You use it so much, and then people get inured to it, and then it's it's no good. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the very nice things about the Stargate universe is technically it kind of ends on a cliffhanger because you don't know where they're going to go. But they had enough time that to, to see where everything was going that they knew that if they had to fin- if it had to end at this particular time, which unfortunately it did, that they gave you enough of a closure that you could that you would be okay with it. You wouldn't be as, you know, with, with flash forward, that, that you wouldn't be pissed that now there's still stuff that you didn't, you know, that you don't know. For for Stargate Universe, it was like there was more to explore. Yeah. I <laughs> I hear you, brother. Um, but there, the, with Stargate Universe, there was more to explore, but we did tie off, and this goes back to your thing about uh, drama and emotions and stuff like that. We tied off a lot of the emotional ends so that, you know, uh, Eli comes into his own, uh, lots of other things get resolved, and it's as satisfactory an ending point as you can make that at that time. Ending points are really tricky even if you know you're going to get to do them. I, I was slagging Enterprise a little bit earlier. Enterprise, the whole final episode is about Captain Archer getting ready to give a speech at the founding of the United Federation of Planets. And it fades to black when he's walking in to give the speech. You'd never hear what he's going to say, which was a failure on the part of the writers, right? If you're going to say, I'm going to give you a great speech, then you've got to end with it. It doesn't have to be a whole act. It can be 10 really good lines. 
but they chickened out. That was a mistake. Voyager, you're waiting forever for Voyager to finally get home, and when they finally go to the finale, they jump past that. Voyager has been home, and it's the aftermath of years later. People, I really do think when you finally do get the chance to end it, there is a, a, a real chance for the writers to get cold feet and say, you know what, I don't want to actually do what I've been promising for four, five, seven years in the case the, of Voyager and just and do something different instead. And that's wrong, wrong, wrong. You gotta the ending the of, Ten more seconds. The ending of Next Generation. <laughs> the ending of Next Generation was actually a very good one, right? It was actually a very good one. It harked back to the beginning. It brought closure. It brought closure for character arcs. It brought closure for everything. That is so, so hard to do. It's a remarkable piece of work. And I'll say in defense of my great friend, Brandon Braga, for those of you who sometimes slag him, for his involvement in Star Trek. Please also remember that he won a Hugo for writing All Good Things, the season finale, the series finale of Star Trek The Next Generation. That was 38 seconds. <laughs> That's a nerd. I'm a geek. In the back, please. But if you can change the series TV, is there really that much resistance to coming to them? Here's a five-year story arc. They want one to four pages to sell the whole series. If you can do your five-year story arc in a paragraph, that's great. But they have nobody has the attention span to say, right, five years, 22 episodes a year is a lot of episodes, 100 episodes. Nobody is going to sit and read even one paragraph descriptions of 100 episodes before they decide whether or not they're buying the series. I was in Hollywood just... 10 days ago, trying to sell a series. And I think, I won't announce anything yet, but I think I did. Sold it in the room, which is where you go in and you pitch it to the right people, and they decide whether or not, before you, before you leave the room, whether or not you've done what you have to do without reading anything on paper. So yeah, sure they want to. Got a five-year art? Great. Check mark. Glad I, you got I, that. I think it's the opposite. Got, got big talent that you're going to sign for this? Good. Check mark. Go ahead. I, I don't think they want to hear a five-year arc. I think that's, I think that's too much. They don't, business-wise, they have no idea if something's going to be on five years. I think in today's environment, they want you to grab them and know that they can get a good season out of it. Yeah. Um, I think a five-year arc would scare them. and They'd say, well, we don't have five years, or we don't know right. we have five well, years. Well, I right. think, yeah, no, and I think that, to your point, I mean, when you're writing uh, specifically, you want to make sure that you get people right from the get-go. That's the same whether you're writing TV shows, whether you're writing movies, or whether you're writing books. You want to give them something. If, if I had a book and I said to you, well, I know that the first three chapters are really slow, but the time you get to chapter four, that chapter rocks. You're like, sorry, no. I mean, <laughs> if you have that five-year, if if you have that five-year arc, it's going to be, it's going to be fine. It's nice that you have that, but you really do have to make sure. Every season, I think, to go back to the thing, give them a complete season, give them something that that season in and of itself is sufficient, um, and then everything else sort of takes care of itself from there. And one. Sure. One of the things, though, and it's part of the fallout, the negative fallout of Flash Forward and a couple of big failures from last year, uh, the, the previous broadcast year, is there's not a lot of interest anymore in serialized drama. It was shown, Flash Forward being a classic example, that it's really hard to get the audience to tune in every single week and watch the show chron in chronological order. Uh, and if they're not going to do that, if it's not working out the way it did for Lost, where people were glued to it and always came back, and you start losing people instead of retaining people because you can't just drop in and out of the show, you're in big trouble. And so most of what's being pitched now 
bought now, what was on the air this past season and will be on the air this coming season, is episodic, not yeah. serial. Yeah, nice that, okay, he starts off a single person and he's married by the end of first season, great, great, great. What happens each episode? How is each episode generated? What are the story generation, what is the story generation engine that's going to spin off a hundred unique tales from your idea? Well, there's also a, a really good business reason for that, and it is show business. Yes. And um, I uh, worked for several years on Law & Order, which I don't mention here because it's not a law convention. Um, <laughs> I was a writer-producer, and think about what Dick Wolf did. He came up with a show that could keep changing, but you could air it in syndication in any order you want. Yeah. And people will watch an episode from season two followed by an episode from season nine. So business-wise, Everybody's gotten hip to the fact that this is really, the, the whole 24, the whole thing that 24 uh, started is sort of coming to a close because it's just too hard to, to make money in the afterlife. For a while, they were putting them out in DVDs, and that was great. And with that declining, I think that's what yeah. really put the yeah. nail in the coffin. Totally. Yeah. But I think that there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, episodic can be good. And you can also even do hybrids. I mean, X-Files is a perfect example of that. They had some of it that, you know, half of the episodes were mythology, half of them were standalone. So. Yeah. Right. Totally. We have red shirt. Uh -oh, oh, red shirt. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to live to hear the answer. Why let him ask the question? I'm sorry, sir. I will actually before you start. I will tell you. I'll tell you a story. I'm reading these scripts uh, for for Stargate Universe, uh, and they have one where you know, there's this the scene that says red shirt walks down the hall, right? <laughs> and you're like, oh, dude, come on. <laughs> so sad for that actor. I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. <laughs> Right, it's a very good question. Yeah, very good question. Why is it when science fiction and fantasy is boffo box office at movies, they're scared about it on network television? It's something we wrestled with because we didn't understand that edict either. The answer is that it's successful at movies. There are uh, people who can drag their boyfriends or girlfriends off to see a science fiction movie as a one-off. As a favor, they'll go and watch that new movie with them. But they won't commit week after week after week to it. It's the reality of it. The, also, the reality is that when you're selling a network television show, what you're really selling is commercial watching eyeballs. You're selling people who are going to go out and buy products. It's very hard to position the science fiction audience as being targeted at a specific thing. Are you all in the market for a specific high-end hybrid car right now? No, a few of you are, a lot of you aren't. It's a very hard market to, to sell commercial time to because it doesn't have a lot of attractive uh, characteristics. The reality is Battlestar Galactica, wonderful show. In a really good week, how many people watched Battlestar Galactica on sci-fi? Anybody know? Two and a half million or something. Not like even. Not even. They rarely peaked over a million. 800,000 was a great week for, for them. Let me finish that. That means you can walk out this door here and talk to 399 people before you find the 400th not American who, not this door, who watched that show. <laughs> who watched that show, right? We, had, we were a failure on ABC because we had 10 times of Battlestar Galactica for Flash Forward. That's a reality. You can't, you can't cater to niche audience or niche audiences uh, on broadcast television. I want to add a little uh, part of the answer to that, too, which is that even though now we have big screens in our homes and stuff and you're watching movies and you say it's all interchangeable, 
TV is still about much more about the emotions. It's still thought of as kind of a, you're inviting the people in your homes every week, and that's why you know you, you'll keep watching for 22, 100 episodes. Yeah. You have to like the characters. So TV is always going to be much more until everything is all jumbled and it's all one thing, which we haven't hit yet. I think peop, the people who pay the bills for making TV want you to come back. And that's based on liking the characters. So it's, not, it's never going to be, at least till we change, it's not going to be the same as a movie. When, uh, you know, my novel Flash Forward, the Flashes are 20 years in the future and they're six months in the TV series. What was the number one reason that change was made? It was so that when the audience, when the people who weren't getting in the audience were channel surfing, they would never see a science fictional image, which we would have to do if we were portraying a world 20 years in the future. Because for general middle America, when they're channel surfing and they hit a spaceship or an alien or something high tech, it's worse than when Homer Simpson hits PBS. They can't press the channel change fast <laughs> enough to get past it. There are lots of hands, but I want to go way over here first. Okay, and some of the networks, too, I think in some ways they intentionally try to kill the sci-fi. Because when you get mid-season breaks that are three, 12, you know, three to 12 months long for a mid-season break, and then when they bring it back, all of a sudden, you know, it was on at 8 o'clock, now it's on at midnight, now it's on at yeah. now it's on at 4 in the afternoon, and on a day. <laughs> and then you do that consistently, you know, Eureka, Warehouse 13. Warehouse 13 had a 12-month mid-season break. Yeah, well, um, I, I understand that this 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 is a I mean this is a science fiction shibboleth that you know the, that these networks intentionally go out of their way to kill things and certainly it feels that way, but if they were going to kill them the easiest time for them to do that would have been in the pilots you're not going to actually invest twenty thirty million dollars just to say and now we're going to kill science fiction because we hate science fiction so much stab 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 the the simple fact of the matter is. They, they get them, what they do is they, it looks like a good idea, they put it up, they start seeing the, you know, where are we going to put it up, how are we going to put it onto our schedule, what's going on against that particular time frame, that where do we need to put it, uh, they start getting the first reviews in, then they start doing the thing of where do we put this so that it has a better chance, and so on and so forth. It's not just science fiction that this happens to. I mean, God knows that there was an entire place, uh, it, uh, you know, uh, Thursday night, that everything that went on on Thursday night in the mid-80s uh, and 90s, you know, against NBC was a sacrificial victim. But they had to program that time, so something had to go there. Um, and so, and, you know, and then they would take something and they would try to move it. It happens to every TV show. It's not just science fiction. We notice it because we watch science fiction, but it certainly happens other places as well. I, I think the, your idea of a conspiracy among network heads also assumes a level of competence that simply doesn't exist. Very patient over here in the black shirt. That actually is very interesting that they're able, to, the on-demand takes out this hit or miss element. So we may see a transition back. 
and uh, Netflix is investing in original production, which yeah, is a very interesting uh, change of affairs. Rather than just being a passive distributor of whatever you want, they recognize that they have an especial ability to service markets that are falling by the wayside under the broadcast model. So I do think there are going to be lots and lots of interesting opportunities for, uh, inter for um, ongoing series that you have to watch in a specific order because that's easy for you to do. And the fact that you haven't watched it for four weeks doesn't mean that you haven't watched every episode the same day that they came out. It still works. That's going to change. It is, will be a game changer. The Already thing, is being that. Yeah. The thing is, is that you also uh, have to understand that 20, 20, 30 years ago, the only game in town in terms of doing TV was network TV. That was the model that you had to do. Um, these days, you have Netflix, the, the Kevin Spacey thing that they're going to do. Um, you have uh, HBO, which does not have the same commercial consideration as network TV because they get subscriptions. Uh, you have uh, niche uh, networks where you can 800,000 uh, people instead of 8, 8 million uh, viewers uh, is acceptable. You ha and then you have broadcast. There are different tranches, if you want to call it, of televised entertainment. So you will see lots of opportunity to, to do things that you haven't otherwise done. The great thing about the web, you know, uh, in terms of like the guild and everything else like that, is that you also have things that can be five or eight or seven minutes long. There's not tied into a particular length of time. But certainly if you have the case where you have, there's a commercial interest involved, um, you are going to have, probably have things that are episodic you are, but going to have things that they'll grab you immediately and so on and so forth. But John, I'm glad you mentioned the web because that's another uh, partial answer to your question, something that's percolating under the surface. I just sold a web series to Vuguru, which is uh, Michael Eisner's company who used to head Disney, and I never could have sold this to television. It's sort of science fiction-y and it's a murder mystery at the same time. And um, that will eventually be packaged in some form and be sold off either as a movie or, or possibly as a series. But right now, you're going to see a lot more of that where you can do the episodic kind of stuff in kind of a different format, and there's not the constraints. So I think a lot is going on now. Yeah. Before we get confluence of everything being the same, we're going to get a lot of things that are very different. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right here. Um, I try to watch sci-fi and fantasy, but I tend to get all the episodes last minute, like the Dresden Files and like Firefly. I get them two years after they came out. You get them on DVD? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you take the compliments where you can get them. <laughs> I, I wasn't actively involved, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> There's a rumor that Dresden Files is coming back. Well, I'm waiting for the rights to expire so I can reacquire them and make a movie out of it and do it properly. But, um, hey, I'm just curious. Uh, Dresden Files, I've met a lot of people at this convention who say they turn to the books because of the TV series. I think I find that very interesting because it was supposed to be the other way around, that there was enough following from the books mm. that people uh, went to the show. But I think everybody agrees the show was not done properly. And uh, um, now there's a book series called Midnight Riot by Ben Aronovich. Do you yeah, guys, yeah. It, yeah. It's great. It's, it's very similar to Dresden, only it's set in London. And somebody's already acquired that. And when I looked into that, I found out there's like six other supernatural procedurals in the works. So I think Dresden kind of paved the way and they didn't quite get it right, but you're gonna see a lot of those now. And I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> All 
right, we have time for a couple more. The demographic was wrong, yeah. Uh, no, the, the, ra the ratings weren't good enough. The ratings just weren't high enough. And, and the show was a little rudderless. I mean, very quickly on, on Dresden Files, I, um, I acquired the rights, and then I got hooked up with uh, Nicolas Cage's company, who was looking to do something. So they were kind of the juice that got it sold. And, um, uh, but they were kind of rudderless for a while. They, they, I liked the books because they seemed like a supernatural procedural, and I had come from Law and Order. But they went full circle, and they kept saying, no, it's just a fantasy. No, he's a wizard. No, he's a detective. So I think a lot of the problems stem from, from a network that wasn't sure what they wanted. And if a network's not sure what they want, then they can easily look at it and say, it's not what we thought we were getting. But the demographics are hugely important. They talk about the demo. Everybody wants to know how you did in the demo, the core audience. That the really most valuable audience is 18 to 24, which you would think intuitively makes no financial sense. These are people who are at university or still at home with their parents or just getting out into the world. They don't have the most disposable income. It's, in fact, a better middle class and above retirees who have the most disposable income. Uh, but they have no brand loyalty. By the time you're 40, 50, 60, you've decided, I've always bought Ford, I'm always going to buy Ford. I always buy Rice Krispies, I'm going to keep on buying Rice Krispies. The core demo is appealing to advertiser-based media because they are still susceptible to changing their brand affinities. And that's why they're uh, pursued so assiduously. Unless they're I, Apple. I, I just have to make a look. It's 18 to 34. So you, ha you do get people with some money. We, well, well <laughs> I know at ABC, we were absolutely told 18 to 24. Really? Yeah, 18 to 45 was acceptable, but 18 to 24 was the absolute core demo for ABC. That executive absolutely. 18 was, to 24. That executive he is gone was drunk. Now. He was no, drunk. He's it gone was, it's, now. It's, the it's, president it's, of ABC. Yeah. How about uh, back here? Yeah. That's blasphemy, sir, and you will be killed. Everybody on Flash Forward and no one else in the world used Palm Pre devices in 2009. Right. No, I, I don't think that's as prevalent, though, as, as you might think. I, yeah. I, I, I just don't see it happening. This was supposed to be the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the golden thing for TV shows is to uh, put all the product placement in. I, I, I don't think it ever took off as much as people want. Yeah, I mean, actually, if you want to you know where it really took off, it took off in, in, in movies. James Bond, uh, the last James Bond movie was substantially financed by merchandising deals, um, aside from the ones that were done by Sony, which was distributing it at the time. Again, I mean, there, we all have lots of reasons why our favorite TV shows that are science fiction or fantasy have failed, but a lot of it simply comes down to, it is not a conspiracy, it is not anything else other than, uh, you know, there just weren't enough people watching it at a particular time. And we can put the blame on DVR, we can put the blame on, you know, malicious executives. But the fact of the matter at the end of the day is if you want these things to succeed, find out when they are showing first run, sit your ass down and watch it. And call your friends who are a Nielsen family. Make oh, sure yeah. they watch there it. There you go. All right. And don't pirate the thing, for God's sake. Seriously. If you want this stuff to exist, 
get on board it. with the economic model that makes it possible. Every time you watch Dresden Files or Next Generation or Flash Forward or Stargate Universe and have circumvented the methods by which it is legally distributed, you have no right whatsoever to grouse that there aren't more shows like that anymore. I have anymore. to applaud that. <laughs> on that note, we are officially out of time. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. I am Gnomewise. I am Gonora. I am Iolite. I am Daxa. I am Grail. And I am versus you. I am versus you. And I'm versus you. I am versus you. And I'm versus you. Casually Hardcore. Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. GMT. Only on VTWProductions.com. <laughs>